Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just keep your finger in there. Today, November 9th and 10th actually, marks the 75th anniversary of Kristallnacht. And as I had thought about what I wanted to share with you, what I wanted to draw our attention to this morning, rather than to continue on in the book of Ephesians this day, I thought it appropriate, not just appropriate, the right thing to do to reflect on this moment. 75th anniversary, November 9th and 10th, 1938, in Germany, Austria, portions of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland, uh, Jewish shops, Jewish homes, Jewish synagogues were destroyed, burned, uh, pillaged, and looted. It's called Kristallnacht because it is the night of broken glass. This year in Germany, there are all kinds of special events that are going on. One of the things that's happening in Germany is that shop owners are taking tape and taping up the uh, glass, uh, what would you call it, storefront, glass storefronts, glass uh, display areas uh, on their stores to mark the anniversary. Over the past five or seven or eight years, the German people have been placing in various uh, various places in front of stores, in front of homes, what they ca- what are called I forget what it's called in German, but they are called stumbling blocks, and these stumbling blocks are plaques that are put on Jewish stores, on J- previously owned Jewish stores, Jewish apartment buildings, Jewish homes, saying the name of the persons that had owned that property and the year and date that they were deported to one of their concentration camps. So over the years, the German people have placed these. So uh, I remember when I was in Germany, you would walk down the street, main main roadway and thoroughfare, and you would see these stores, and then there are these golden plaques, and on it it would say Mr. and Mrs. Rosenberg uh, deported to Auschwitz, October, whatever, 1940-something, or or 1930-something. These are small ways, but significant ways, that the German people are acknowledging, remembering, and reflecting upon. My good friend Brian, he spends a lot of time in Germany on business, and he spends a good deal of time in the city of Erlangen, just north of Nuremberg and not too far north of Munich. 
And while he was there, he'd spend about eight or nine months on a sabbatical. And while he was in Germany, he saw or experienced in one occasion where these neo-Nazis came off the train and came into Erlangen. And they uh, set up the blowhorns in which they start spewing out all of their hate mongering and for all kinds of races, Jews included as well. And the people of Erlangen gather around them at the time that they come and they all bring whistles. And as they are saying whatever they're trying to say, the people of Erlangen have the whistles and they just blow them, you know, so they can sort of uh, shout out louder than uh, the neo-Nazis that come into town. This is still a big problem in Germany and in other nations of the world, to be sure, in Europe. So I think it is the right thing to do to take a moment to reflect on this moment in time. Kristallnacht did not happen in a vacuum. Hitler came to power in 1932. He was voted into power by a democratic electorate. And he garnered something like 37, 39% of the popular vote in a multi-party system. There were about 10 or 12 different parties that were running for office. And the Nazi party, National Socialist Party, had gained 39%. It's a huge uh, amount of the population and their vote. When Hitler came to power, he began to set into motion all kinds of policies, laws, measures to ostracize and segregate the Jewish people. It culminated in 1938. What was happening in 1938, November of 1938, but what happened in 1938 as these measures continued to have an effect on the Jewish people and on all the people of Germany... In March, Hitler marched into Austria. And when he marched into Austria, he annexed Austria as part of the German Empire. He also annexed the Sudetenland. That is that area that borders Czechoslovakia. Today, I guess it's the Czech Republic and Germany and also parts of Poland. And he annexed these territories. Hitler wanted to rid the German people and the European continent of the Jewish people. So by the mid and late 30s, he began to set into policies in place that would force Jews to emigrate from Germany. Now, by 1938, many Jews were already beginning to leave Germany because the Nuremberg Laws went into effect as early as 1933. And they continued to be enlarged until 1935. Dachau, the very first of the concentration camps, opened in 1932. It was the longest running concentration camp because it wasn't liberated until 1945. And so as Hitler took control, annexed Austria and the Sudetenland and portions of Czechoslovakia, he then sought to force Jews to emigrate out of Germany. Many Jews were leaving that could leave if you had resources, finances, and if you had contacts, relatives or friends that would sponsor you in neighboring nations, you could leave Germany. 
Many left and went to Holland, the Netherlands, France, and other countries that later would be engulfed by the Nazis, and thus those Jews would have been caught up in the Holocaust and taken to various concentration camps and death camps, unless they left and went to England or the United States or somewhere outside of Europe. But in 1938, in October of 1938, Hitler then forced all foreign Jews in Germany to leave. He simply rounded them up one evening, some 17,000 Polish Jews that had immigrated to Germany over the years were rounded up. They were marched to the border of Poland and Germany. Now, many Jew, Jew, uh, Polish Jews were leaving Germany prior to 1938 and going back to Poland. Many in Austria, when Austria was annexed in March of 1938, many Polish Jews returned to Poland. Poland was the largest Jewish community in the world at that time, three and a half million Jewish people. And so most Jews that were coming to Germany were from Poland, and now they were voluntarily leaving because they saw the handwriting on the, on the wall headed back to Poland. But now in October, any foreign Jews, any Polish Jews that remained, Hitler was forcing to leave. So 17,000 Polish Jews were marched to the border of Poland and Germany. By this point, Poland didn't want any more Jews coming into their country. So they were keeping the Jews out and these uh, exiles from coming back to the land of Poland. So Hitler just left them on the borders. And there they were without any homes, without any shelter, without any food. Just 17,000 people there on the border of Poland and Germany. And the Germans just left them there. Poland eventually received them and allowed them to come into the country. Now, while this was happening in November, about November the 7th, if I'm not mistaken, and if I can have the first slide, this young man, Herschel Greenspan, who is a Polish Jew, whose family immigrated to Germany in 1911, were now forced to leave Germany. Herschel was living in Paris, France. When he heard of his family's forced exile from Germany, he was very angry. He's 17 years old in this photograph. He walks up to the German embassy in Paris and he asks for an audience with the German consulate official. He's introduced to Ernest von Roth, who is the Germ one of the German workers, one of the German officials at the embassy in Paris. Herschel pulls out a gun and he shoots him three times. He hits him in his stomach, in his shoulder, and in his arm. Herschel is immediately arrested. He's taken to Sachsenhausen, which is a uh, concentration camp in the northern part of Germany, not far from Berlin. And the last we hear of Herschel is of his existence in that concentration camp as late as 1942. And after that, we don't hear of him anymore and obviously had died. Now, when the consulate at this official was murdered or shot, he lingers for two days before he dies. Now, in the past, it had been assumed that his death was the result of the shots of Herschel. But recently, a new book had come out evaluating this event. 
And this particular author, and I don't know if we'll ever get to the truth of this, but this particular author had concluded that, no, he did not die of those gunshot wounds. As he studied the forensics and the medical reports and the official reports, Hitler had sent his personal physician to von Roth to take care of him over the next two days that he was to be healed. But he dies. This particular author believes that Hitler sent his personal physician to make sure that he would die so that he could be used as an excuse to incite the people of Germany to uh, initiate a pogrom and an attack upon the Jewish people. So two days later, on November 9th, 1938, Goebbels, who is the Nazi uh, propagandist, he gets on the radio and he speaks about this event. And he lambasts the Jewish people as a people group. He tells them of their uh, worldwide conspiracy to take over the world and of their uh, betrayal of the fatherland. He tells them on the air that while he would expect the German people to be very angry with the Jewish people, not to do anything rash and not to be out of control. But behind the scenes, the Nazis are working with the Hitler Youth, they're working with the SA, they're working with the SS, and they, are having, they have them dress up in plain clothes and to begin to incite riots throughout Germany, Czechoslovakia, Austria, and the border areas around Germany near Poland. And this incites the people of Germany... It encourages the people of Germany to have an open season on the Jewish people. Now, some of these photographs, and you can uh, start rotating them. Some of these, not too fast, backtrack. Um, Some of these photographs, they're hard to see some of them, they're black and white, but it gives you a picture, an image of the extensiveness of the damage, let alone the terror that had struck the Jewish people throughout these, uh, these cities. So these are various shots. So why don't you uh, forward them a few more. A few more. This is some of the, uh, the aftermath, some of the glass that had to be cleaned up, and the storefronts that were destroyed. Now this is an interesting photo, isn't it? As you just take a moment. I mean, here are some people looking at what's happening. Are they the owners? Are they Jewish people? This man with the briefcase sort of just bustling by. The, this woman and this man, they're laughing. They're like smiling. It's very, uh, well, that's not what we're about. But let's come back. But it's very unsettling seeing an image like that, at least to me. Let's forward it. These photographs, by the way, were taken because the Nazis had planned on creating a museum to the extinction of the Jewish people. So these photographs, don't go too fast, these photographs were taken so that when this museum was put up, they would show the world what they considered, come back, what they considered to be positive things that we Germans have done for the benefit of the world. So come on to the next one. 
That's a stirring one too, isn't it? This man just staring there. You know, just what's going on? What's happening? Go to the next one. They would put police out in front of, in front of these places showing their a participation, that this was a government-sponsored uh, event. They would not allow some Jewish people to go back to begin the process of cleaning up. We can go on. Here's this, you know, another thing that's interesting is these are main streets. These are not happening somewhere in an isolated village somewhere in the forests of Germany. These are in major cities. Look at the the home right across uh, the street on the left side of the photograph. I mean, people are living here all night. They're hearing people yelling in the streets, people attacking individuals, breaking glass, breaking into uh, people's homes and into people's place of businesses. Let's go on to the next one. I mean, this sort of tells the story, you know, as people are mulling by. Next one. These were all different cities in Germany. Next one. Now hold it here for a minute. So one thing they did was to attack Jewish businesses and destroy uh, their, their way of life and their businesses. This is a map showing the major areas where Jewish synagogues were burned on this night as well. So it wasn't just Jewish homes and Jewish businesses, but also synagogues just dotting the area. In Vienna alone, 18 of the 21 synagogues were burned to the ground. And you can see all throughout the land of Germany, there were approximately five, uh, what was it, five million Jewish people living in Germany. When I've taught on the Holocaust, I'd say to my students, what percentage of Germany was Jewish at the time of the Holocaust? I've had some of my students, not just young people, but also adults, might say, well, 75%? I mean, it's an extraordinary number, isn't it? 75% of the people? I've had people say 40%, 50%, 30%, 20%. All of them are much too high. Less than one half of 1% of the German nation was Jewish. And yet you can see that in Austria, the Sudetenland, as I talked about before by Czechoslovakia, and all of these other cities in between. If you look to the south, you can see where Munich was. Munich is an important city in this whole history because in 1923, Hitler was arrested. And in 1923, he led 2,000 men, armed men, to attack the police station in Munich to begin a takeover of Germany. It was resisted and put down, and as a result, Hitler was found guilty of treason. He was given something like nine years, but only served nine months in prison. While in prison in 1923, he had written Mein Kampf. The date when he had led his 2,000 men to attack the police station in Munich was November 9th and 10th, 1923. Kristallnacht occurs November 9th and 10th, 1938. So while the Nazis are celebrating that first 
uh, attempt to take over Germany in 1923, they also have an opportunity now to attack the Jewish people in 1938. All of these moments are coalescing and they're coming to a crescendo, 1938. Go to the next slide. So these are some photographs of the synagogues that were destroyed. When I was in, went to Israel this past summer, I first went to Germany for a day. We went to the city of Mainz. Mainz is the place where Gutenberg has his printing press, considered the greatest invention in all of history right now because of its, the significance of how it changed communication. And when you go to the museum, you can see all of these Bibles that were printed in the Middle Ages and 1800s. The priceless books printed by Gutenberg on the Gutenberg printing press. You walk around the corner from the main center of town where there are four or five different churches. You just walk around the corner and you're in a major uh, community. In 1938, it was the Jewish community of Mainz. It's sort of like if you've ever gone to New York City and you've walked among the brownstone buildings in Brooklyn or Queens. That's what this area was like. And across the street was a rebuilt synagogue that Joel and myself, my friend Brian, we were able to visit. It was rebuilt, but outside of the synagogue were these old, uh, like, uh, archways. The only remaining part of the synagogue after it was burned on Kristallnacht. What amazed me was that the synagogue was here. I would walk across the street and then I was at all of these apartment buildings. The street was very narrow and all around the synagogue were just homes where people lived. And in the middle of it, the synagogue was burned to the ground. I mean, I just stood there walking around the synagogue, walking up and down the streets, just trying to imagine what it must have been like to see what was transpiring right before my eyes, just across the street from perhaps from where I lived. Let's go through some of these slides. This, by the way, is a, what's called the Great Hall. It's an entranceway to a Jewish cemetery. And it would be there that they would have certain ceremonies before the dead were uh, were buried. They even burned these uh, buildings associated with Jewish cemeteries. Uh, advances. This is another synagogue. This is another one. Look at this building. I mean, it's just, it's huge. They forced the Jewish people to come out on the next day. Friday night, by the way, was November 9th. The 10th was a Shabbat. They did this particularly on the Jewish Sabbath. And they forced Jewish people who might have been hiding in their homes to come out and to see the destruction of their communities. Go on to some other ones. Notice this photo. Look at where the firemen are aiming the hoses. They're aimed at the houses next to the synagogue so that they don't burn. They're not trying to put the synagogue out. They're trying to keep the homes around the synagogue from catching flames as well. Here's another shot of a synagogue. You can see the, the, the stained glass windows. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. See again, the police are just there standing, watching, not attempting to put any of this out or to stop people from destroying it. Go on. 
That gives you a sense of how the communities were established in these cities. It was absolutely mind-boggling to be on that spot at that time when we were in Mainz. Next one. Next one. Now, I wanted you to see the interior of some of these synagogues as well. So they destroyed Jewish homes, Jewish businesses, looted these places, burned the synagogues. You saw the outside. Look at the inside damage that was done. Hold on. That was done as well. When you go to the United States Memorial, Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., they have a whole section of materials that were salvaged from Kristallnacht. Torah scrolls that are open and they're in a glass case that were salvaged uh, during Kristallnacht. Some of the arcs, we have the Aron Kodesh that we house the Torah scroll in. Many of them were destroyed. And in what is common in the Jewish synagogues is over the top would be carved in Hebrew, know before whom you stand. And it was to remind us that when we read the word of God, it is God's word before us. Know before whom you stand. And many of these uh, arcs uh, are, were completely destroyed, but that phrase, one of them on the uh, border uh, that bordered the ark is in the museum, and you can see these cuts made with an axe or some instruments on the statement, know before whom you stand. It's very uh, significant. This is the inside of one synagogue. Go ahead, Anne. Here's some more. We'll go to another one. All these photographs were taken for a museum, remember. Go ahead. This is the aftermath. Go ahead. Here's some of the cleanup crews that were taking place. Go ahead. Another synagogue. Another one. The inside, you can see the bima and how it was situated. Go ahead. There's an uh, Aaron Kodesh. You see the lines of Judah on top. And you can see on the top, it may be hard to read, but it says, know before whom you stand. Go ahead. Here's another inside of a synagogue, and you can see how the Torah scrolls were damaged in the ark. Go ahead. Go ahead. This synagogue, all that remained was the outside wall that is leaning that you can see. Again, people just staring and mesmerized. Go ahead. At the end of Kristallnacht, Jews were forced to go into these synagogues after they were damaged. And you could see they were people and military people, police, they would line the way and they'd force Jewish elders, Jewish men uh, to come into the synagogue. Go ahead. Here are Jewish men that are being lined up as they have to look at the damage. Go ahead. Here's another crowd. You can see how large and the communities were there. It's amazing to me. I was talking to my friend Rob, and he just came back from a trip to Israel. There were some people there from Europe. And um, one of these individuals, after they walked out of Yad Vashem, had said to him, I know what I saw, but I'll tell you, we did not know what was going on. And Rob was like aghast. He couldn't believe that. Somebody was thinking that. When you look at this, how can you begin to say, we didn't know what was going on? Go to the next one. After the synagogues, the places were burned, 
Jewish men were rounded up, taken up to concentration camps. So what you're seeing here are some of the men that are being uh, marched through the streets. You can see the community is watching them. You can see soldiers or military officials, police that are escorting them, standing on the side. Go ahead. Here's another through the city. Look at the buildings in the background, right in the center of the city. Jewish men, all men taken, brought to concentration camps. Go ahead. Here's another uh, group of Jewish people, Jewish men that are taken in the streets lined with individuals watching. Go ahead. Here's another that says, oust the Jews, kick the Jews out. And you can see they're marching them through the streets. Go ahead. This is an interesting photograph as well. You can see on the, the, the car that's in the front, it has an SS a license plate. You can see the police, the SS troops that have the Jewish men between them. You can see people watching, see people up on the top, this woman it looks like, somebody with a, looks like a, a camera or something. A young boy ru running through the street, sort of looking at it as a parade. Go ahead. And they would take many of the Jewish articles that were in the synagogues, uh, books and religious articles, and they would burn them and have the community come out and, and watch as these Jewish articles are being burned. Of course, the movie just came out, The Book Thief, which is about uh, this period of time. Go ahead. Back. And here is a group of Jews that were taken, brought to a concentration camp. I wanted you to see this because when I show you the statistics, you'll be amazed at what transpired on these two days. Now, at the, at the conclusion of this, there were articles in the paper. Check this out. Go to the next one. In the New York Times, Nazis smash, loot, and burn Jewish shops and temples until Goebbels calls a halt. I mean, he's the one that called, instigated it. But the way the article is written, it's as if, boy, it's a good thing Goebbels was on the scene because if he didn't, if he wasn't there, it would have continued. And look at this article on the side. On the side, bands rove cities, thousands arrested for protection, as gangs avenge Paris death. So the Nazis said, "We're gathering all these Jewish men because we want to protect them from anyone harming them, given uh, the riots that are going on." Go to the next one. Of course, someone has to pay for the mess and to clean it up. And there are also insurance companies that are insuring the homes and the businesses and the articles. This could have busted the economy of Germany. But the Nazis wouldn't let that happen. So the Jewish people themselves are fined for the riots. Go ahead. They're fined what in 1938 was equivalent to $400 million for all the damage that was that was committed. Go ahead. So take note of the aftermath of this event. First, 7,500 Jewish businesses were either damaged or destroyed. So I showed you a lot of photos. You might have said, man, do we have to look at all of these things? Don't go so fast. Come back. Should I, you know, uh, do I have to show you all these things? Well, 7,500 businesses were damaged. They said 91 Jewish people were murdered. Go ahead. 600 Jewish people committed suicide in Austria alone, as recorded. Go ahead. 267 synagogues were destroyed throughout Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland. Go ahead. 
30,000 Jewish men were arrested and they were brought to Dachau, Buchenwald, and Sachsenhausen. So when I showed you all those men gathered there, how many were there? Maybe there was 1,000 or 2,000. Maybe there was just a few hundred. But 30,000 Jewish men were uh, arrested on that occasion. Go ahead. The German Jewish community was then fined what was at that time 1 billion Reichsmarks, which was equivalent to $400 million in 1938. Go ahead. And the government confiscated all the insurance payouts to the Jewish people whose homes and businesses were looted and, and, uh, or destroyed. And that money then was put into the German treasury and the Nazi treasury and was then used to fuel the Nazi war machine. Go ahead. So Kristallnacht was the turning point in the Nazis' war against the Jews. And that's why it's important for us to pause uh, on this day. Go ahead. It was at this point that the anti-Jewish policies were now taken out of the hands of the police and put into the hands of the SS. Go ahead. The passivity and the complicity of the German people as a whole in the way they responded to the violence, it signaled to the Nazis that the German public was prepared to accept even more radical and violent measures against the Jews. When they saw that the German population did not rise up against what they were doing, they understood that to mean They'll go along with whatever else we do in the future. Go ahead. The Nazis then set in motion measures to exclude more significantly Jewish people from the social and economic uh, life in Germany. Go ahead. They continue to force emigration of Jews from Germany. Go ahead. And the deportation of Jews to the east as uh, to Poland, which they would then invade in 1939 and then uh, set up the killing squads, which would then lead to the mass murders, the mass graves, and then that would lead to the concentration camps and the death camps in Eastern Europe. And this was seen as their step to free Germany of the Jewish people. And lastly, Nazi Germany's persecution of the Jews would then culminate in their attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. They would kill 6 million Jews in Europe. 9 million lived at that time. So two-thirds of the European Jewish community was destroyed uh, during the time of the Nazi era. And so, uh, and we can close that now. So on this occasion, we remember and reflect on what had transpired. Now, one of the things that I thought about Because this was on a Friday night and a Saturday. This was on a Shabbat. I just wondered what the reading in the synagogue was on that particular day. So I went online to try to figure out how do you go back to November 9th and 10th, 1938, and what what portion would have been read. And the portion that was read was entitled Vayera which means, and he appeared. And it is Genesis chapters 18 through 22. And in chapter 18, of course, that's when the Lord appears to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, and the three men appear, and he feeds them. 
And one of them he addresses as the Lord. And when those three men, those angels appear, they tell Sarah and Abraham, this time next year, you will have a son who will be Isaac. Well, you would have a son. Sarah laughs. This is not going to happen to a woman who is 90 years old. And God, overhearing her laugh, says you're going to name the son Yitzchak, which means laughter. So every time that they would call their son, the last laugh was on Sarah and Abraham. And so every time they called, they go laughter and they would remember how they responded to God's word. That's chapter 18. Chapters 19 and 20 is the event of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where Abraham pleads with God, if there are 10 in the city, will you not destroy it? And God says, if there are 10. Unfortunately, there was only one. And so there were nine short. Think about that. Nine short would have saved the entire city and the surrounding villages of Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of those people because of their wickedness. And then it picks up again in chapter 22 with the offering of Isaac. And when Abraham says that I and the lad will go and worship the Lord and then we will come to you, the rabbi's understanding of that is that Abraham believed God would resurrect his son from the dead. Now the Haftorah portion that is associated with this reading is also interesting. It's taken from 2 Kings chapter 1. And 2 Kings chapter 1 is the story of Elisha the prophet. And Elisha the prophet, during the course of his ministry, would move throughout the cities of the northern kingdom of Israel. And on one occasion, he goes through, and on a variety of occasions, he goes through the city of Zarephath. And there he is welcomed by a family, this Shunammite woman. And she loves Elisha. And her husband loves Elisha. And so the woman says to her husband, let's build an addition on our home. So that when Elisha comes through, he'll always have a place to stay. So they build the addition and Elisha now has a place he can stay whenever he comes through this area or stays in Zarephath. Over time, Elisha says to his servant, Gehazi, what do you think we could do for this woman who's been so kind to us? And as they're thinking about what they might do, he says, well, you know, this woman hasn't been able to have any children. I think she'd really be blessed if she could have some children. So Elisha comes into the area and he says to the woman, because of the kindness of her heart, same words that are said to Abraham and Sarah, this time next year, you will have a son. And indeed, then next year, she does have a son. And as she's taking care of her son, we don't know how long after she had her son, her son dies while she's holding him in her lap. Word is communicated to Elisha. This woman is distraught. You promised her a son and then the son is taken away. What kind of a thing is that? And Elisha tells Gehazi to go to the woman, take his staff and lay it down upon him. And she does. he does. But nothing happens. So Elisha then comes to the city. He visits with the woman. 
He goes upstairs and he lays down upon the sun. It says face to face, hand to hand, legs to legs. I don't know if I could do something like that. And he just lays down on him. And his life enters into the sun. And he's resurrected from the dead. That's why the rabbi said Abraham believed that his son would be resurrected just like this woman's son was resurrected. I couldn't help but think of the parallels, this moment of utter persecution and pogrom and destruction. And you have Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction. But in the midst of that are rays of hope as God promises Sarah a son and This Shunammite woman, this woman of Zarephath has promised a son and both sons who were in reality going to be killed were raised to life. And while the enemies of Israel might attempt to destroy God's people, God raises them to life and he manifests his purposes and his glory. Now, what are the lessons that we might learn? Let me just share with you very briefly a couple of thoughts that come to me as I was reading 2 Timothy. So I asked you to open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and just very quickly, let me share with you what struck me about these passages and what, how they might help us when we think of such a moment as Kristallnacht, a moment that's not isolated to 1938, Because if the Iranians have their way, who knows what effect that could have on Israel. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know God is in control. I know Israel is the apple of his eye. But from a human perspective, we have to be very much concerned about what's going on in our world, especially in the Middle East, and the effect it can have on the people of Israel. But take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul tells Timothy, mark this. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Take note of this. Don't miss this and get it riveted in your brain. He says, there will be terrible times in the last days. That word terrible is very interesting. It only appears one other place in the Brit Hadashah. It appears in Matthew 28, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, the man of Gadara, who is possessed by 6,000 demons, right? He says, we are legion, a legion were 6,000 troops in a Roman army. So he was possessed by 6,000 demons. And the word, same word here, used there, describes him as being violent, And so there, the same word, translated violent, here it's translated terrible. But you get the picture. Paul is saying the last days will be horrific days. Messiah tells us they would be like the days of Noah were. And if they were like the days the Noah were and God destroyed the entire world by a flood, what then must the last days be like? I think the lesson we need to learn from what Paul is saying is we need to be realistic about the day and age in which we live. While I was raised in the 60s, a peace child, it's just not realistic. 
We live in horrific days, terrible days, days of great wickedness and sin. Now, I need not go through what Paul says, but look at how he describes the character of people in those days. And to be sure, there have been people like this in every age, but in the last days it will intensify and be extended so that that is what we will be dealing with in the last days. Dare I say it, what we see at Kristallnacht is only a prelude to the wickedness and violence and evil that is yet to come upon our world. We live in a world that is wicked enough. How much more wicked could it possibly become? But Paul tells Timothy, be realistic about the day and age in which we live because the days are evil. We need to make the most of our time because the days are evil. And that wickedness will touch us somewhere, somehow, in some manner. And thus we need to be realistic about the day and age in which we live. Unfortunately, the people of Germany were not. And thus they did not stand up to wickedness when it reared its ugly head. And when they did stand up, it was so minimal and by handfuls of people that the effect was not significant as a whole. For the individuals they may have saved and risked their lives and in some instances gave their lives for, incredibly significant. But in the greater scale of the Holocaust, certainly it was not. Here's the second point, I think. Look at verse 10. You who have us, so number one, we need to be realistic about the world in which we live. Notice he says in verse 10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, what kinds of things happened to me, and I endured. The Lord rescued me from all of them. That didn't mean that he never was stoned. He was. That didn't mean he never encountered shipwreck. He did five times. It didn't mean that he was spared being imprisoned. He was. And yet Paul says, despite his suffering, God rescued him in the midst of his suffering. I think the second thing we need to see is that we need to become models of righteousness in the fallen world in which we live. That's what Paul is saying. Take note of my patience. Take note of my endurance. Take note of my service and mimic me. Follow me. Look at me as as an example. The last days will be days of terrible wickedness. Act like me. Be a person of faith. Be a person of patience. Be a person of endurance. Be a person of love in the midst of the trials and tribulations and indeed persecutions. Because such persecutions will come. Yeshua said, in this world you will have tribulation. In fact, he tells us rejoice when persecutions come because so were the prophets who were before us. So the second thing is not only be realistic about the world in which we live, it is a wicked place and it will get worse over time. But also determine in yourself to be a role model of righteousness for others. 
Joel had written to me a text message. He said, Dad, when you were uh, a, um, a coach of Little League and soccer and all that stuff, what were your coaching philosophies? And I said, I didn't even think of a philosophy. I just wanted to get out there and let the kids have fun and play the game. But one thing I did say to Joel, and that was, do not attempt to be the best teacher of the game you could be. Determine to be the best coach you can be. Nobody knows all the skills required for any given sport or any given subject. But when you are coaching, when you are teaching, indeed, when you are pastoring, people are not learning what you are instructing them, I told Joel. You may be instructing them about lacrosse. They're learning some of that. But that's not really what's sinking into their hearts and minds. When I would teach Bible in class, while I had to instruct them about the Word of God, that's not what was sinking into their hearts and minds. What was sinking into their hearts and minds was Mr. D. What was sinking into their hearts and minds was Coach Dereshinsky. And when I preach and teach the Word of God here, I know that what I'm instructing is in many instances going in one ear and out the other. But what you all are learning is Gary Dereshinsky. Does he live up to the things that he is sharing? Does he manifest the kind of character traits he's encouraging? Is he ready to experience the sacrifices that he's saying we all are? That's what we're thinking. Even as we learn the data, the bottom line is you are what people are learning. And so I said to to my son, be the best instructor you can be, but always remember they are learning Joel. And at the end of the day, you want them to think back and say, what a great coach I had when I was 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or however old they may become. Similarly, what we want to leave is not what information I've been able or we've been able to disseminate to others. We want them to leave saying, what a good fill-in-the-blank you happen to be to them. He or she made an impact on my life, and I want to be like him or her. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. You saw how I endured. It doesn't say you know how much I know. But he says, you saw what my life was like under pressure. Do that for those who are observing you. And the last thing I'd like to say, or two last things, I'm sorry, is notice what he says in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Devote yourself to the word of God. Know the days are evil. Be realistic about the day and age in which we live. Devote yourself to being godlike so that you're a model for others because that's what they will remember. They will remember you, not merely what you say. And that means we need to devote ourselves to God's word. We need to be in it every day. We need to be studying it, scrutinizing it, reflecting on it, embracing it, and living it. And lastly, if you look at chapter 4, 
He says a whole thing in verses 1 to 5, but just look at verse 5. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. We need to be people who are realistic about the day and age in which we live. They were not. We need to be role models for others to follow. They were not. We need to be devoted to the word of God that we are committed to it. No matter what churches they went to or what they said, they were not. And we need to be spreading the truth of God's word to others. Do the work of an evangelist. There are many things that could be said about Kristallnacht. But if times of hardship await us, let us be ones that anticipate it and not complain because of it. Let us be ones who live righteously in spite of it. Let us be ones who are devoted to God's word, no matter how much we might want to say, where is God when all this stuff happens? We're devoted to his word. And no matter what the hardship, we will not let it deter us from our love for him and our worship of him. And let us therefore be circumspect about making sure we are his spokespersons to the lost around us. Do the hard work, he says to Timothy, of an evangelist. It's not easy, but do it. Because that's what people need, for it's the only thing that will save. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for yourself. You are the righteous judge of all the earth. And while some may have appeared to have gotten away with great wickedness, one day they will stand before you, the judge of all the earth and of all of time. And will answer for their actions or their lack of it. Some during that horrific period in our history not too long ago. Will stand as righteous flames before you having given you glory by loving your people so much that they would risk and even give their lives for your people. But too many will stand before you. And hear those words, depart from me, for I have never known you. And Lord, hard times await us as well. Perhaps, and certainly for some in our world who love you, they are facing the same kinds of pogroms like our people experienced in 1938. We have been spared in this country, and we are grateful for your grace in doing that for us. But may we not spurn the moment we have. But may we be responsive to your word. Let us be realistic about the day and age in which we live. Let us be determined to model the work of Messiah in our lives to others. Enable us to devote ourselves fully and wholeheartedly to your word. And move us to share its truths, which are about you, O our Holy Lord, to others. And then, Father, we would pray for 
your Jewish people this day particularly. And we pray as many events are going on reflecting on this moment, as many survivors are reflecting back on the horrors they experienced, might you minister to the hearts and souls of each and every one. May some find life in you somehow, somewhere on this occasion. And may your people, Father, be always precious in your sight as your treasured possession. And may you watch over them. May you protect them. And may you provide for them. And for ourselves who are called to be a light to the nations and a light to your people, may we shine brightly before them. And might they see Messiah in and through us, who is the very manifestation, the image of you, our Heavenly Father. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.